I recently ran an opinion poll online asking people how often they think seriously about death, about its inevitability, about their priorities in light of it, etc. And I gave the choices many times a day, perhaps once a day. I can go days without thinking about it. I can go weeks without thinking about it. And I'm not sure what results I was expecting, but the distribution did surprise me. Obviously, this isn't a scientific sample. It was mostly a sample of the kind of people who follow me on Twitter. Though I think the poll did spread somewhat beyond my audience. I got over 40,000 responses. Anyway, the largest cohort were those who don't think about death very often. 32% said they can go weeks without doing so. 27% can go days without it. 28% think about death perhaps once a day. And only 13% were people like me who think about it many times each day. So, judging from these results, I probably think about death more in the average day than most people think about it in many months or even a year. I generally don't think about it in a way that I would consider morbid. My thoughts tend to be more in line with the memento mori reflections that are widely recommended by Buddhists and Stoics, and which you can find echoed in several places in Waking Up. Reflecting on the preciousness of life, on the non-renewable character of time, on the reality that you simply don't know how much time you have, but you definitely have one less day today and every day. Thoughts of this kind need not make a person depressed, though perhaps they make some people depressed. Rather, they can and should inspire us to wisdom and compassion. Do that most important thing now. Express your love now. Relinquish those hang-ups now. Bury the hatchet now. Recognize the nature of mind now. Live fully now. For one day, you will die. But it does seem that many people don't reflect in this way and do their best to avoid thinking about death altogether. And even those of us who think about it a lot still suffer from various forms of death denial. For instance, even though the reality and inevitability of death seem very well established in my mind, more often than not, I'm still shocked to learn that any specific person has died, unless that person was in his or her 90s. Any specific death still seems somehow anomalous to me. My first question is some incredulous version of, what happened? So I do detect in myself some form of death denial, even though I think about the reality of death a lot. And the reality of it is everywhere. I notice more and more that many of the people I admire, people who I read or listen to with pleasure, actors who I enjoy watching in films, people whose thoughts and personalities I can summon in an instant by picking up a book or typing their names into YouTube, I notice more and more that many of these people are dead. 
and some died at an age that I've already surpassed. And I'm also occasionally aware that I'm likely going to occupy this role for other people. I don't think it's totally grandiose of me to imagine that some people will listen to my voice or read my books after I'm dead. Now, I'm 54 at the time I'm recording this. How long will I live? Obviously, I have no idea. But what will it be like for someone who cares about the life I've lived and who finds some value in my view of the world? What will it be like for you to listen to this audio after I'm gone? To know that I lived as fully as you do now, but to know that I no longer do? Well, I know exactly what that's like. I have that experience more or less every day. There's something very strange about this time capsule effect, this one-way communication with the past. It's amazing that we have media that allows us to do this, to have this shock of recognition. You can summon Carl Sagan or Marlon Brando from beyond the grave and fully recognize that they were once as alive as you are now. And we know the precise day that they died. And we also know that the world went on without them. When we think about death, there are different facets of it that we can focus on. We can think about our own deaths, or we can think about the deaths of other people, in particular those closest to us. And these are very different problems. When I think about the deaths of the people I love, the focus is much more on my own bereavement than it is on the fact of death itself. Even though it's true that when I die, I will lose everyone, I won't be alive to experience that loss. So bereavement doesn't really enter into it. It seems to me that the pure reflection on death itself is really best focused on our own case. However, even here it's possible to get distracted by other things. For instance, we can worry about the process of dying, whether it's going to be sudden or after a long illness. Will it be painful or in some other way chaotic? Or will we go peacefully in our sleep? Thinking about the process of dying is really thinking about the specific experiences one will have at the end of one's life. To think about death itself is to think about what happens after that, or about what doesn't happen after that. So it's not the dying, it's the being dead part that interests me here. So today I'm going to say a few things about what it might mean to be dead, and I want to explore certain paradoxes that seem to surround this phenomenon. So we can leave the process of dying aside. It's going to be whatever it will be. And whatever it is, it will be a finite experience, which is to say that however painful it might be in the case of any one of us, there will come a time when it ceases to be painful. Even if one suffers a long illness and a blizzard of medical interventions, there will be a moment when all of that ends. So dying will be like anything else in life. It will be temporary. The part that seems like it might not be temporary is the condition of being dead. Now, what we think about death 
in particular about what happens to each of us after our bodies die, depends on what we believe about two fundamental questions in the philosophy of mind, the nature of consciousness and the nature of identity. The question about the status of consciousness in the natural world is often referred to as the mind-body problem. What is the relationship between mind and matter? Where does consciousness come from? Does it arise on the basis of information processing in the brain? Or is it a more fundamental constituent of matter? Or is matter itself a mere appearance in consciousness, which would then be the true base layer of reality? There are rival metaphysical views here, specifically physicalism, panpsychism, and idealism. And however one resolves the mind-body problem, there remains the problem of personal identity. For instance, in what sense am I the same person, or self, or consciousness, that I was yesterday? What could be the basis of any claim to identity? Is it just a matter of psychological continuity through time? What's the significance of such continuity when we think about replacing parts of ourselves, even parts of our brains? Or stranger still, when we think about the prospect of copying our minds onto some other substrate, what would it mean to create minds that have perfect copies of our memories and desires, perhaps better copies than we maintain normally while living? What would any of this suggest about the nature of personal identity? Now, I've discussed many of these riddles elsewhere without giving anything like final answers to them. But here I want to focus on the question of death as viewed from the inside, from the point of view of the experience of any person who has died. And of course, this will be each of us, ultimately, unless we get to a time where we're actually duplicating ourselves or otherwise perfectly resisting biological decay. Each of us will one day be counted among the dead by those who outlive us. But before we get started here, there's one peculiar intuition, often held by religious people, that I think we should dispense with at the outset. And it's the intuition that if death really is the end of us, if it's synonymous with the end of experience, well then that finality robs life of any conceivable purpose or meaning or significance. The idea seems to be that the only way for love or knowledge or beauty or happiness to matter is for these states of mind and states of the world to last forever. It's eternity or nothing. This is a surprisingly common point of view, as I said, especially among the religious. But if you think about it, it is a strange idea. And it's also strange that no one seems to apply it to specific experiences. I never hear someone say that if a play or a dance or a piece of music or a conversation or a hug or a meal or a sunset or anything else doesn't last forever, well, then it was pointless. Rather, I think one could easily argue it's the transiency of everything that magnifies the beauty of everything. I would also point out that the decisions we make while alive, the culture we create, the ideas we invent and spread, all of this directly affects the minds of the people who will outlive us. And the effect we have on these people 
could well make the difference between humanity petering out over the course of the next century or spreading itself through the galaxy for millions or even billions of years. Just take a moment to contemplate the difference between these two futures. In the first, humanity has no future because we fail to mitigate some specific existential risks. And in the other, our future is truly open-ended. We achieve a kind of escape velocity with respect to our survival. Now, of course, there are intermediate places on this landscape. If we don't play our cards quite right, we might persist for a very long time under conditions that are not only not desirable, but maybe quite terrible, based on our failure to cooperate intelligently generation after generation. But how each of us lives now will help determine our trajectory here. So what we think and say now matters, even if we're not around to experience the consequences. So I won't go into it further here, but I just wanted to indicate that I don't think the finality of death in the case of each individual says much of anything about that individual's life. And it certainly says nothing about the meaning of life itself. But there is also something paradoxical about the very idea of death as a condition in which every individual life and mind terminates. And my purpose now is to explore that paradox. The philosopher Tom Clark has a wonderful essay, which you can read on his website, naturalism.org. And the essay is titled, Death, Nothingness, and Subjectivity. And I want to explore his argument here in some detail. Of course, other philosophers and scientists have said many things on this point. For instance, we have the famous quotation from Epicurus, as we encounter him in Lucretius's poem on the nature of things. Quote, Death is nothing to us. When we exist, death is not. And when death exists, we are not. All sensation and consciousness ends with death, and therefore in death there is neither pleasure nor pain. End quote. So this idea of nothingness, of oblivion, of a dark abyss, of a kind of positive absence, of an endless deprivation of experience, is misleading if we're simply talking about the end of experience. You didn't experience your absence before you were born. And if death is truly the end of experience, you won't experience your absence after you die. So this reification of death as eternal nothingness is fundamentally misleading. And Clark starts his essay there. The philosopher Wittgenstein made a similar point in disparaging Freud's notion of the unconscious. He said, quote, Imagine a language in which instead of saying, I found nobody in the room, one said, I found Mr. Nobody in the room. Imagine the philosophical problems that would arise out of such a convention. End quote. That's from the Blue Book. The point is, nothingness isn't something, and therefore it can't be a permanent condition of any being or mind. The second point that Clark explores is the subjective continuity of consciousness. From the point of view of consciousness, there can be no experience of before or after with respect to birth and death. So there is something 
almost eternal about it from its own point of view. Of course, we think we experience interruptions of consciousness while alive, in sleep or under anesthesia, but that's not quite true. It's true that we experience changes in the character of our experience, that is, in the contents of consciousness. It feels like something to wake up groggy from sleep, say. But from the point of view of consciousness, we just experience one moment after the next, even if some moments indicate that there were periods of time that we can't account for, or did not experience at all. From the point of view of consciousness, there is just subjective continuity. We are, in some sense, always present. Now, there are certain caveats from a meditative point of view, because there are experiences in meditation that are often described as cessation experiences, where seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking and any awareness of the body or the world gets fundamentally interrupted. And depending on the tradition one is practicing in, these episodes are either accorded enormous significance or totally ignored. I would just make the point that they really don't pose a challenge to what Clark is arguing here. If the experience of cessation is truly the absence of experience, well, then it can't be experienced, and the continuum of conscious subjectivity will remain undivided from its own point of view. If, on the other hand, there is some qualitative character to these intervals of cessation, however subtle, well, then that is another instance of conscious experience, however subtle. In either case, from the point of view of consciousness, we just have one damn thing after the next, even when some of those things indicate that there must have been a preceding gap in the continuum. That is, we lost some hours to sleep or to anesthesia or some minutes or moments to some experience of cessation in meditation. In fact, it's not clear to me that consciousness isn't routinely interrupted even in the normal course of events. And this could be analogous to what happens when we move our eyes several times a second with each visual saccade. When you move your eyes around the visual scene, conscious vision is suppressed during the time of those movements. Otherwise, you'd experience the world lurching around several times a second. And you can see what it would be like if you place your fingers on either side of your eyes and jiggle them manually. Your brain corrects for normal eye movement by suppressing the visual data during each saccade. So our experience of being present in the world, in every other channel, may be more punctate than it seems. And there are certainly experiences one can have in meditation that do make it seem that way. It can seem like everything, including consciousness itself, is arising and passing away in each moment. But again, this is always judged in some way retrospectively based on the qualitative character of consciousness in each subsequent moment. So consciousness itself never has a beginning or ending for itself, from its point of view. And this does have implications for how we think about the nothingness that bounds either side of our lives. As Clark points out, the time before your birth is not an abyss from which you managed to escape. And by the same token, the time after you die cannot be some sort of oblivion. From the point of view of consciousness, there is something eternal 
about its being what it is. In this moment, from your point of view, there was never a time at which you didn't exist, and there won't be a time at which your existence will end. Okay, so now I'm making the turn toward paradox proper. Let's just review where we are. We have the fact that we should not expect to experience oblivion after death, even if death is synonymous with the end of experience. And we have the fact that consciousness is always present for itself, that it is continuous even if we have good reason to think that it gets interrupted in the case of any specific person. There's one more fact to consider before things get genuinely strange. It's this further fact that consciousness is intrinsically impersonal because it's merely the light by which anything that is personal is known. And this includes anything you can notice about yourself, your sensory experience, what you see and feel in this moment, or any specific memory or thought. Literally anything you can bring to mind or perceive in this or any other moment, your beliefs, your desires, anything you can notice about yourself that makes you specifically you and not some other person. All of these personal things are merely appearances in consciousness. Consciousness itself is utterly undefined. It's the impersonal condition in which everything else arises. So, recognizing this, Clark suggests, quote, Instead of anticipating nothingness at death, I propose that we should anticipate the subjective sense of always having been present, experienced within a different context, the context provided by those subjectivities which exist or come into being. End quote. And then to make this very strange and quasi-mystical idea more plausible, he then proposes a kind of Rip Van Winkle thought experiment. Imagine being put to sleep and then being awakened many years or even centuries later. It should be clear that experientially this isn't fundamentally different from what happens to you every night. You would still be you, experiencing the continuity of consciousness. It's just that your circumstance in the world would be very different. But now imagine that changes were made to you during the interval. How much would we have to change about you for us to say that your life ended and that a completely new person has been born? If the changes were minor, well then you would just be the same person waking up with just a few quirks. If the changes are sweeping, well then you would be quite different, but there still seems to be the subjective continuity from the point of view of consciousness. It's just that the contents of consciousness have changed. Your goals, your desires, your memories. Even though the memories of your old life might be gone, it does seem very strange to say that the interval of sleep is now some kind of permanent abyss that is a real death from the point of view of consciousness. Here's what Clark writes, quote, Although this transformation has disrupted the personal subjective continuity imparted by a stable context of memory and personality. There is another sort of continuity, or sameness, that's created by the shared sense of always having been present. Such generic subjective continuity 
is independent of the context of memory and personality, that is, of being a particular person. And it amounts simply to the fact that whoever wakes up feels as if they've always been here, that there's been no subjective blank or emptiness in front of their current experience. We can, I think, imagine going to sleep, being radically transformed, and having someone else wake up with no worry about falling into nothingness, even though we no longer exist. End quote. It seems to me that this effect is especially clear if we just skip the interval of sleep. Just imagine if we changed you moment by moment. If we changed each one of your memories and every other personal attribute, one at a time, every second, for the rest of the day. Let's say you don't currently like radishes, but in 14 minutes, you will. Let's say you currently remember that you had cereal for breakfast today, but in about an hour, you'll recall that you had eggs this morning. At what point in this process of change would we have to say that you had died and that this new person's experience is no longer subjectively continuous with yours? Is there such a point? Why would there be? There's been no cessation of consciousness. It's just that the context of consciousness has gradually changed. Now, would death come any nearer to you if we started changing your cells? Perhaps by swapping in cells that harbor the DNA of another person? Imagine that consciousness is maintained through this process. Is there a point at which death is real? So sit with that for a second, and now we can leap to the truly strange inference. How are such manipulations any different than what happens when one person dies and another person is born? In this case, too, there's no end to experience from the point of view of consciousness for the first person, nor does the second person who's born experience a prior period of never having existed before. There's just the subjective continuity of consciousness as and for itself in either case. And it's intrinsically impersonal. Clark writes, quote, This thesis implies that even if all centers of awareness were extinguished and the next conscious creature appeared millions of years hence, perhaps in a galaxy far, far away, there would still be no subjective interregnum. Subjectivity would jump that objective gap just as easily as it jumps the gap from our last experience before sleep to the first upon awakening. All the boring eons that pass without the existence of a subject will be irrelevant for the subject that comes into being, nor will they count as nothingness for all the conscious entities which cease to exist. Subjectivity, awareness, consciousness, experience, whatever we call it, never stops arising as far as it is concerned. And then he goes on later in the essay to make the final point, quote, Despite my naturalistic and materialist caveats at the beginning of this essay, such a conclusion may seem to have a mystical ring. It may seem as though I give too much weight to the subjective sense of always having been present. And in claiming that subjectivity for itself always is, 
I ignore the vast times and spaces in which no consciousness exists at all. Nevertheless, I believe a materialist can see that consciousness, as a strictly physical phenomenon instantiated by the brain, creates a world subjectively immune to its own disappearance. It is the very finitude of a self-reflective cognitive system that bars it from witnessing its own beginning or ending, and hence prevents there being, for it, any condition other than existing. Its ending is only an event, and its non-existence a current fact for other perspectives. After death, we won't experience non-being. We won't, quote, fade to black. We continue as the generic subjectivity that always finds itself here, in the various contexts of awareness that the physical universe manages to create. So when I recommend that you look forward to the continuing sense of always having been here, construe that you not as a particular person, but as that condition of awareness, which although manifesting itself in finite subjectivities, nevertheless always finds itself present. End quote. So again, that is a fascinating quasi-mystical view of consciousness that is resolutely material. Of course, there are quite similar mystical variants of this, or at least idealistic variants. The physicist Erwin Schrödinger reached just such a view, inspired by the Indian teachings of Advaita Vedanta, and it sounds identical to Clark's, though he is making an idealistic claim about consciousness being the base layer of reality itself. Schrodinger writes, quote, What is it that called you suddenly out of nothingness to enjoy for a brief while a spectacle which remains quite indifferent to you? The conditions for your existence are almost as old as the rocks. For thousands of years, men have striven and suffered and begotten, and women have brought forth in pain. A hundred years ago, perhaps, Another man sat on this spot. Like you, he gazed with awe and yearning in his heart at the dying light of the glaciers. Like you, he was begotten of man and born of woman. He felt pain and brief joy, as you do. Was he someone else? Was it not you yourself? What is this self of yours? What was the necessary condition for making the thing conceived this time into you? just you, and not someone else. What clearly intelligible scientific meaning can this someone else really have? If she who is now your mother had cohabited with someone else, and had a son by him, and your father had done likewise, would you have come to be? Or were you living in them, and in your father's father, and backward, thousands of years ago? And even if this is so, why are you not your brother? Why is your brother not you? Why are you not one of your distant cousins? What justifies you in obstinately discovering this difference, the difference between you and someone else, when objectively what is there is the same? What is this I? If you analyze it closely, you will, I think, find that it is just a little bit more than a collection of single data experiences, and memories, namely the canvas upon which they are collected. And you will, on close inspection, find that what you really mean by I is that ground stuff 
upon which they are collected. You may come to a distant country, lose sight of all your friends, and may all but forget them. You acquire new friends. You share life with them as intensely as you ever did with your old ones. Less and less important will become the fact that, while living your new life, you still recollect the old one, the youth that was I. You may come to speak of him in the third person. Indeed, the protagonist of the novel you are reading is probably nearer to your heart, certainly more intensely alive and better known to you. Yet there has been no intermediate break, no death, and even if a skilled hypnotist succeeded in blotting out entirely all your earlier reminiscences, you would not find that he had killed you. In no case is there a loss of personal existence to deplore, nor will there ever be. End quote. And Schrodinger died on January 4th, 1961, at the age of 73. And there's a plaque on his grave that reads, in part, So all being is a one and only being. And that it continues to be when someone dies, this tells you that he did not cease to be. So, make of these reflections what you will. I hope you find them at least interesting. And I suspect that many of you will also find them psychologically useful. Until next time, thanks for listening.